Hi, Mark. Hey, Serge, how are you? Good, thanks. Okay. So uh, you're a psychologist who has been specializing in addictions. Uh, how did you get into that? Uh, well, uh, contrary to a lot of stereotypes, I uh, got into it just by happenstance. I needed a job, and I got a job at a, a, a drug clinic in uh, Chester, PA, just before the crack epidemic hit. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to apply family therapy to addiction, which had modest success at best. And um, over time, I became more uh, interested in, in the area, uh, which as luck would have it, since I was in it. Um, and then I began uh, getting interested in AA. One day I was um, working at uh, a, a, an outpatient program and somebody didn't show up. So I went upstairs to go to the uh, AA meeting that I knew had been up there. And uh, it was, uh, it opened my eyes. It was a revelation. Uh, I had always thought it was kind of a cult and it was kind of, uh, you know, had wacky language and was, uh, you know, spirituality involved all this kind of thing but it was really impressive to hear how the people spoke with each other and how they um how real they were with each other and the fringe benefit was the next day i went to work in on the inpatient unit and everybody all the patients thought i was the cool guy because i was the only doctoral level staff member who had ever showed up and that that uh, cachet stayed with me for months and months and months even after the patients had left yeah, I was seen as the uh, the cool guy. Um, so uh, my my earlier orientation had been uh, family therapy. I was raised on psychodynamic theory and humanistic theory. I went to Brandeis, so Abe Maslow was walking around campus, and Maury Schwartz was a uh, was a uh, mentor of mine. And um, then I uh, encountered systems theory. But I have to say that my approach to addictions and to a lot of other kinds of treatment has really been influenced by AA. Uh, a lot of the worldview has seeped into my treatment um, in addictions and in other uh, problems. And um, it, it, it's become a really valuable uh, resource for me. Having said that, I've also moved beyond that. Uh, I, somewhere around 2000, I read uh, Recovery Options by Joe Volpicelli, who I was able to work with after that. And it was a guide to all the various uh, methods of recovery that AA was not the only one. Uh, years later, I read uh, Slaying the Dragon by William White, which is just an incredible book. And it's the history of recovery movements from the Revolutionary War to now. And it places all the recovery programs of which there have been many in, in a historical context and makes it very valuable, very um, gives a real history and a place for both AA and all the other things that are, uh, that have come along. Uh, again, one other thing about AA is that when it came along in the late thirties, it was the only game in town. Psychology and psychiatry had, um, Neglected addiction. Uh, the the, the uh, I think Bill Miller said that at that point, if you were an academic looking at uh, addiction, you were going to be confined to Siberia. That's changed quite a bit. Um, 
but uh, AA influenced the way we look at addiction in, in a good way and in a bad way. It, it's also limited our view because um, in the AA worldview, there is addiction and there's everything else. Whereas I think now we're looking at it more as a continuum and I'll, I'll talk about that more um, as we go along. Um, and one of the things for me is that psychologists and addictions counselors don't always see things eye to eye. They're two very different worldviews. Mm. And I've come around to seeing more of the addiction counselor's point of view of it. I never lose my psychological perspective on it, but I see that some of the psychological theories of addiction just don't hold water. And uh, it's more fun to talk about resolving trauma and dealing with, um, you know, ego defenses. Um, but ultimately, I, I look at uh, addiction as a unitary primary disorder, which is somewhat independent of psychological factors. It's, 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 they, they figure in, but the core of it, I think, is more physiological and genetic. Yeah, so, so you're a bit cynical about the psychological theories of addiction, and I you think, think it, of it as something that is a, a phenomenon of its own. Absolutely. I think it's a mistake to look at addiction as a symptom of an underlying disorder. I've seen too many people who are being treated by psychologists, psychiatrists in good, with good intentions, uh, well-trained people, but they're, they're taking the, the premise, which is fairly logical, that, well, a guy's using cocaine because he's unhappy, he's depressed. So if we treat the depression, the cocaine use, drinking, whatever, will go away. And it just doesn't seem to work that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, so, yeah. So maybe that's a good place to uh, talk a little bit about your definitions of addiction. Uh, sure. Um, and again, when we talk about addiction, we're not talking about substance use. Uh, most people in our culture, uh, in our society, will be able to use certainly alcohol, very much marijuana, but even cocaine and heroin. It's possible to use those in moderate, um, in a moderate fashion. Um, in terms of opiates, we, we, we know lots of people who are prescribed um, uh, Percocet, let's say, or Vicodan, take two pills every six hours. You come back five years later and they're taking two pills every six hours. They're not, um, they don't become addicted to it. And we'll define addiction in a minute. Uh, there is a normal place for the substance. You don't want to go get your wisdom teeth taken out without Vicodan or Percocet. Uh, you don't want to um, uh, do do all sorts of other things w without these uh, various chemicals. The problem comes when people develop an addiction. And when I say addiction, uh, let me say one or two preliminary things. In DSM-2, which I have on the shelf, and I'm, I won't pull it down, addiction was defined as a personality disorder. It was seen as a psychological phenomenon. When the DSM-3 came along, they made an important distinction between dependence and abuse. Abuse meaning you had some problems that came about because of uh, your substance use. Dependence was you have problems, but you also seem to have physiological components to it. 
I thought that was a very useful distinction. What DSM-5 has taken it uh, further and, and, and has construed it as a continuum, that there are mild problems, moderate problems, severe problems. Now, in some ways, especially if you look at the codes, mild problems has the same code as abuse, and these other two have dependence. So we're, you know, um, diagnostically, it ends up being a very similar animal. But to look at it as a continuum is a whole different matter. And what we see now, or what I see anyway, is that different treatment applies to people at this end of the spectrum and that end of the spectrum. In the milder, um, milder levels of disorder, psychological factors figure more prominently. Mm -hmm. As you move towards the more serious uh, end of the spectrum, psychological factors are there, but they're secondary. Um, the, um, well, I'll get into moderation versus abstinence. Um, the other important thing to understand in terms of the uh, definitions of addiction is to see addiction as a primary disorder. It, it has a life of its own, independent of any psychological origin. So there's an important, distinguish between, important point to distinguish between the initiation of substance use and its development into addiction, into a substance use disorder. There are, um, there are healthy social uses of alcohol. People will say, oh, he's using for the wrong reasons. He went to a party and he has to smoke marijuana to deal with his social anxiety. Well, that's why we have alcohol. That's why we have marijuana is to, to facilitate some of those social interactions. The problem comes when the person loses control over it. And then it becomes a different primary entity. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to, to create a visual here, because um, I don't have my blackboard here. Uh, a, a traditional view of it is the person has a conflict, a disorder, a, uh, a stressor. That leads them to drinking. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying drinking, but really 99% of this applies to drugs too. The, the, this leads to this. So that leads to the typical functional thinking that, well, if we address this, this will not be an issue. The problem is that this now has a life of its own. Right. That's the primary issue. That's the primary issue. And that, in these situations, that needs to be addressed before this. In fact, in a lot of cases, when this is resolved, this dissipates. Um, that the underlying, the so to speak underlying problem turns out to be an artifact of the addiction. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're really talking about reversing the issue on its head. That uh, yes. clearly that the oh. in, in when you're talking about something that's beyond mild, um, the issue itself is the addiction, and the uh, factor that might have caused it is less important than resolves itself. The uh, the not very delicate. Uh, way they refer to this in AKA is when you have diarrhea, you don't sit around wondering what caused it. You go and take care of it. And it's very, very much the same thinking. 
you have to address the drinking first before you address anything that might have triggered it. And in this view, too, by the way, this is not seen as a cause of this. This is seen as a trigger. Yeah. Seen as something that may instigate it. Um, there's no question that some people drink, use drugs to hide from their problems to, as an escape. That's not the issue because that's not altogether abnormal. If someone has a terrible day at work and comes home and has a drink or two, that's, as I said before, that's why we have alcohol. That's okay. If they have 10 drinks, then we have a different issue. If they have a drink on the Friday when they get laid off and they keep drinking Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, we're dealing with a different animal than the person who has a few drinks to um, ease their pain. Um, I remember years ago reading something in, from Carl Manager talking about healthy coping mechanisms, and he included moderate use of alcohol. So we have that, you know, as a reference point. Uh, but getting back to the um, definition of addiction, I use a, uh, an integrative model, and I think of it as concentric circles. Mm -hmm. The core of the addiction is in physiological issues. And those are basically three, three primary factors. The first one is physical dependence, as evidenced by withdrawal symptoms when you take the drug away. And to bring that home, I often describe to people, um, if you don't get your coffee in the morning, what happens? Well, you get headaches, you get cranky, you get irritable. You're in withdrawal. You're in caffeine withdrawal. Imagine that multiplied by 50 to 100 times. That's physical dependence. The second key factor is an elevated tolerance. The person who drinks can drink anyone under the table. The person I should say who drinks, the person who has a drinking problem. The tolerance is elevated. The tolerance uh, may start out low and elevate quickly, or there are some people who the first time they drink, they drank a case of beer. That it's, and, and there's some evidence that this is uh, an inborn vulnerability but we'll get to that in a minute. The third factor is, biological factor, is loss of control. And this is the one that really comes closest to defining uh, addiction. This is the phenomenon of one drink is too many, then a thousand won't be enough. Right. I often describe it to people as your off switch isn't working right. You know, David Letterman says there's no offsetting on the genius switch. This is, for some people, there's no offsetting on the drinking switch. Once they start, they can't stop. And by the basis of, uh, on the basis of operant conditioning, they can't say no when they see it. It's, um, it becomes a, a phenomenon in and of itself. Yeah, so that switch off is uh, or that impossibility of using the switch is a key factor. And, and I, would, I would take it a step further and say, I often refer to it as the switch is impaired. It may not be completely broken. There are people who might, in some circumstances, they will uh, moderate their drinking. But in other circumstances, they lose control of it. Uh, I worked with a young guy who um, had been kicked out of two colleges, had been kicked out as a summer camp counselor on the basis of, all on the basis of drinking. But if he went out to dinner with his family, he would have a glass of wine. 
if he was playing poker with his friends, he'd have a beer or two. Put him at a party, put him at a social event, put him at a place where, you know, loud music and girls, basically, and all hell would break loose. His, his ability to drink was impaired. His ability, I should say, to control his intake was impaired. It wasn't 100% broken. Yeah. But the metaphor I used with people in that situation is, listen, if the brakes on your car failed one time out of five, you drive the car. What's your, what's, your, uh, what's your tolerance for risk? Are you willing to play Russian roulette? Um, now, the other thing about these three, two, two important things. You don't need all three to have a problem. The two classic subdivisions are the maintenance drinker who has physical dependence and a high tolerance but never loses control. That's the guy who kids around and says, I'm a functional alcoholic. I go to work every day. I'm never drunk. Well, true. Come back to them when he's 60 and his liver enzymes are going up. Maybe that was uh, something else. Right. And this can morph into a, um, a larger phenomenon. The other subtype is the person who does not have physical dependence but does have loss of control and may or may not have a high tolerance, usually does. That's a person who can say, honestly, I'm not dependent on alcohol. I don't drink for weeks at a time. But when he does drink, all hell breaks loose again. Um, a, a colleague of mine who was in recovery said, you know, every time I drank, I broke out in handcuffs. I thought that describes it, you know. The... Um, the other thing to know about these three factors is they are really physiologically rooted more than psychologically rooted. Uh, there's uh, plenty of genetic studies that show that the heritability of uh, addiction ranges anywhere from 50 to 60%. That's pretty high. Um, twins, identical twins have three times a higher a concordance rate than mono's fraternal uh, twins, uh, and much higher than siblings. And there's an incredible set of studies by a guy named Mark Shuckett out in California, uh, in which they gave college students measured doses of uh, vodka and recorded their reactions. Kids whose fathers were alcoholic showed a much lesser response to alcohol than kids who were not. Um, related to, to an alcoholic, meaning that they were predisposed to have a high tolerance. That seems to be an inborn risk factor. And to take it a step further, when they looked at, at those kids subsequently, those were the kids who developed alcoholism were the ones with the high tolerance. Now, just to finish out the model, that's the biological piece. The next level is psychological factors which primarily yeah. include denial and defense mechanisms, uh, pure denial, you don't see that often, but defense mechanisms, that's our lifeblood, you know, that's, uh, that's what we spend most of our time in treatment working with. Uh, sense of identity is critical for, for people with addiction. Over time, they start to think that that's who they are. That becomes their frame of reference to look at the world. Um, it's a sign of adulthood being able to drink. You know, drink and drive are the two 
things that kids look forward to. Um, and emotional regulation is another psychological factor that has to be reckoned with. Uh, Ed Kansian has a whole theory of, um, of addiction as uh, self-medication. And there's certainly a lot of validity to that, but I don't think that's the whole uh, story. Then the next level is social, you know, biopsychosocial, like, like we already have, often have. The social level relates to both peers and one's definition of yourself in society, which goes back to identity. Peer influence can be um, benign or malicious. Most people, when you come out of rehab, let's say, most people will say, hey, good for you. I'm glad you did it. Um, there's a small percentage of people who, will, who are looking to see you fall on your face. I don't hear that very often. What I do hear is people who say, great, you've been to rehab. Let's go get a glass of wine. And you say, what are you talking about? Let's just have one. I've literally heard this exchange. Um, they just don't get it. But it's not just that the people are going to induce you to drink. It's that being around them serves as a stimulus, as a trigger. And that's part of the social. The, the enveloping level is the existential or spiritual level, which relates to people coming to accept that they cannot safely drink or use drugs, accepting that they have a basic flaw, that they're, I heard this term earlier today, that they are broken, you know, and that being broken becomes a spiritual stance. It becomes uh, a recognition of your limited uh, nature. Bill Wilson uh, in the big book of AA says, first of all, we have to quit playing God. We have to basically we have to recognize that we're human as humans. We are uh, vulnerable. We're broken. But in, in a deeper sense, that's what binds people together. Uh, Ernest Kurtz wrote a terrific, a terrific book about, about the history of AA and a great article about um, how AA works. And he talked about going to an AA meeting as a place where you can openly express your vulnerability and be accepted and it being mutually shared. I don't have the verbiage right, but that's the gist of it. Um, and finally, the, the, uh, the, these four levels interact because society defines, often defines addiction as personal failure, personal weakness. That leads to the shame at the psychological level, which means that a person doesn't go get help. It's too embarrassing. It's too humiliating. Um, and and, uh, and so forth. Um, yeah, and yeah, finally, so the, the concept is that addiction is not located in the substance. It's located in the person. Um, the AA, uh, the first step of AA says we're powerless over alcohol. The first step of Narcotics Anonymous says we're powerless over our addiction which in a way is more accurate. Uh, it, it locates the addiction in the vulnerability of the person. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, I mean, that's a, a quick version of, uh, of, of the nature of addiction. And of course, it's more people on this end of the continuum. 
there are people on this end who like the like the kid who had to not drink at parties, but he could drink at social occasions, you know, small occasions. There's moderation. Uh, and in fact, there are more people who fit in this end of the spectrum than in this end, but these are the ones who really get attention. These, these number of people do most of the drinking and most of the damage from alcohol and drugs, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you, so you really very clearly see... Uh, different components and that's why it's an integrative mo model because all of these things interact with each other absolutely and and uh, another way of construing it is that the outer layers all serve to reinforce that center core of biological mal maladaptiveness yeah yeah so maybe maybe that's something that um, uh, you know is uh, is to really in um, use a visual metaphor of concentric circles that you mentioned at the beginning and remind people of this, at the center is that biological predisposition. Then you have the psychological circle, then a wider circle that's a social circle. Then you have the existential question. Um, and then um, uh, related to the biological, the genetic factor and the interaction between levels. You're really getting it. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm actually come getting getting my points across. Yeah, that's yeah. The, um, yeah. And, and by the way, those circles. Um, no, I have not. No one else that I know of has done this. But I think those are very useful for treatment planning. Mm -hmm. um, where does this person need the most work? We usually, as psychologists and treatment professionals, we usually address the psychological level. But you have to address the social level. We often do that in terms of family therapy. You know, the, uh, the tendency of families to scapegoat the person, to enable the person, is the opposite level of it. Um, mm -hmm. the, 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 uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a growing topic, but the role of spirituality in, in psychotherapy. Yeah. Um, so I think anyway, you could, you could use those levels to say, where do we need to pay our attention? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that, that from there, maybe we could go to the concept of disease for addiction. Sure, sure. And sure. Um, and very simply, I think at this end of the spectrum, we're talking about a disease. At this end of the spectrum, I'm not so sure, you know whether that applies. Some of the people, by the way, at this end of the spectrum in the early stages of getting there, but a lot of them are not. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. There, there was a book, I think 1960 by Jelinek called the disease concept of alcoholism. And Bill White um, says that it's the most quoted and least read book in the entire field. Uh, and I'm proud to say that I've actually read it. It took me years to get up the gumption to open it. Um, and what Jelinek says is not that it's a disease, which people who haven't read it say, well, Jelinek says it's a disease. Jelinek breaks it down into a number of subtypes, some of which he says are disease entities, the others are not. Um, so it's a little more subtle argument uh, than, than addiction is a disease. I think that um, the argument that for it being a disease are A, the biological, physiological, 
elements we talked about. The um, and uh, the chronicity of it. Again, for people at this end, this is a, this is a chronic condition. This end, maybe not. The um, uh, the the nature of of it being a chronic condition means that it's up to the person who has the problem to treat it. You have pneumonia. You go to the doctor. He prescribes you penicillin or whatever they use nowadays. I'm an old guy. Uh, you break your foot. They put it in a cast. They fix it for you. You have diabetes. Well, they prescribe medications, but it's on you. You know, you're going to have this for a long time. There are things you need to do to stay healthy. Addiction is is much the same kind of entity. If you have it, it's on you to keep it um, under control. Uh, what's so interesting about this is um, Tom McClellan, who's a very uh, important researcher, did a study in 2000 comparing several different types of chronic illnesses, addiction, uh, hypertension, diabetes, asthma. And he looked at relapse rates. And it's something I often use with, with, uh, with patients. Which one had the worst relapse rate? They always say, oh, addiction. No, they all had about the same. It's all contingent on following a program, on following basic guidelines of, uh, of that disease. If you, um, if you have uh, you know, uh, kidney problems and you don't go for your dialysis, you will die. That's on you. And some people say, you know what? I don't want to do this. They don't go and they die. They choose not follow through on the treatment. Um, with addiction, I often describe it as getting support, avoiding high-risk situations, and learning to imagine your, manage your internal emotional states. They often call that halt. Well, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Hmm. Remember it. Um, and then most people would add boredom and jealousy. Those are the two that come up most frequently. Um, and just to finally, to sort of integrate this, I often draw a yin-yang and say one half of this is your disease that you were, are not to blame for. You were born predisposed. Uh, most, most people. Um, there's always somebody who it strikes out of the blue. You were born with this. You did not ask for it. You didn't cause it. You didn't intend for it to happen. Uh, you did not create this. But the other side of it is you have responsibility to do something about it. Both sides have to be considered. The, um, the notion that you're, not, that you're not guilty of having this is important in relieving the shame that people come in with. And we could talk about that more in treatment. But I emphasize the difference between you know, having, having a disorder that you didn't ask for but you still need to take responsibility for it. That's kind of a, a big chunk of what we do in treatment. Um, and uh, I think that's a reasonable point to, oh, I know the one other thing, the critique of the disease concept, one of the most serious critiques of it is, oh, it's just a cop-out. People are using that as a way of uh, evading responsibility. 
And if you go to any kind of AA meeting, you're going to see that that's not at all uh, how it works. The, the way it works is you've got this disorder. What are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. uh, there's an, I'll I'm sure it's not a true story, but the story is a guy who's alcoholic gets stopped for a speeding ticket. And he says to the cop, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I'm rushing off to my AA meeting. If I don't make it, I'm likely to drink. And the cop finishes me and he says, he hands it back to him and says, why don't you reread big four? Uh, why don't you reread chapter four of the big book? You know, oh, this isn't going to work on this guy. This guy's in recovery too. So I think that 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 nature of, of uh, that argument that it's a cop out just doesn't, match reality and that's which is not to say that there aren't some people who say oh for me you know i have i can't go to the party well you know there are a lot of uh, alternatives to that yeah 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 but so that's that gives a context um that uh putting it in the context of other chronic diseases and um that dance between what you are given by nature and what you do to deal with it. Uh, it's a metaphor that really reverberates with a lot of patients um, who, as I say, come in thinking I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a horrible human being. No, you happen to have a, a disorder. You know, I used to work at the Karen Foundation. They had a sign above the door that said, you're not a bad person trying to get good. You're a sick person trying to get healthy. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like it could be a good way to, uh, to conclude, but just maybe let's check if there's something else you might want to add. Uh, no, I have a million stories I could tell, but uh, you know, that, then we'd be here all night. Um, no, I, I, I think that the, the, obviously this is a, a telegraphed version of uh, but I can spend hours and hours elaborating on. Uh, but um, no, I think this lays a groundwork for talking about, you know, how, how do you go about treating it? How do you go about addressing it? Um, especially if it's primarily a, uh, uh, a disease entity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. This is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.